You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. What we said last week is that Jesus is not undermining the law or abolishing the law. That was the word abolish, right? But he is fulfilling it. He is kind of like giving his authoritative interpretation because he's God and he can do that. And it's good to remember uh, from last week that some of the laws were completed in Christ. We gave three filters that we ought to look at the Old Testament through. And one of them was that some of them were completed in Christ because we have to look at the Old Covenant through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of the resurrection, through the lens of Christ. And some of the other laws were reaffirmed by Jesus, reaffirmed, and others were reinterpreted by Jesus. Very crucial in understanding the law and what we do with it. It's also good to note from last Sunday that the law is an excellent teacher. It really shows us how we are, what we look like. Remember that analogy with the mirror? It shows perfectly who you are, and we're all broken and sinful, and yeah, that's us. But yeah, so the law is a great teacher, but is a horrible savior. The law can never save us can never save us. Only Jesus can save us through his righteousness. Because we said last week that he, he clothes us in his righteousness. He wraps his righteousness around us. And that way we have a, a perfect standing, a right standing before a holy and a perfect God. So today Jesus is basically saying, this is how you guys were taught to look at the, the, the law. This is how you understand the law. But I am going to do you a huge favor and tell you exactly what it means. I'm going to take six different sayings which stem from the Old Testament commands and I'm going to unpack them for you so that you understand the heart of God behind these commands. I'm going to give you six examples and then you can kind of do the rest of the the law. And the first one, Jesus says, which is probably one of the most obvious and the clearest evils uh, that we have in the world is you shall not murder. This is what Jesus starts with. This is the saying number one out of six. Also, this command, as probably, probably a lot of you know, is part of the Ten Commandments, which we find in Exodus 20. Uh, we even use that uh, we even use it that way, don't we? That it's the most obvious and clearest of evils, right? When we've done something wrong and we want to justify it and we say, well, I didn't kill anyone, right? We, we do that. Well, I, I guess no one died, I, you know? It's not that big of a deal, right? So Jesus is teaching based on the sixth commandment because it's the sixth commandment in the Mosaic law, you shall not murder. It really centers around this idea of anger, anger. That's why I even decided to entitle the message anger, uh, simply just anger. It could have been hatred, and we'll see why. It could have been bitterness and a lot of other synonyms or a lot of other sins that are encapsulated in this category that we're going to look at today. And since Jesus is connecting murder with anger, he is, very obvious, and as we reflect on this commandment, you shall not murder, we actually need to talk about murder, literal murder. And I want to start with that, actually. We need to talk about the idea of violence or the idea of harming another human life. Now, we can really spend a lot of time here giving examples and stats and all the ways we struggle with anger and hatred and killing people and all of that. But I'm just going to settle on one big one that's close to my heart. We know that Roe versus Wade was overturned last year, right? Praise God for that. But apparently, 
that doesn't stop us from killing more human lives. It doesn't. In 2019, there were 629,000 reported abortions in America. Let that sink for a second. To put that in perspective, that's 1.9 abortions for every 10 life births. So for every five babies, babies that are born, there, there is one child that is murdered for every five. This is what John Mark Commerce says. He is the author of Live No Lies. If you're interested in reading a good book, this is a really good book. I, I recommend it, Live No Lies by John Mark Commerce. And in one of the chapters in his book, he uses abortion as an example of how upside down our cultural ethics have become where what used to be wrong is now celebrated. And, and, and what used to be celebrated is now considered wrong, totally upside down. And he uses abortions as one of, a, one of the clearest examples of this upside down cultural ethics. And he says this, and I quote, honestly, I can't think of a more gut-wrenching example than abortion where the greatest infanticide in human history is recast as reproductive justice. The sheer nerve to use the word justice to refer to the dehumanization, it's not a baby but a fetus, right? And deconstruction of millions of children is inexplicable. The moral reasoning here is just staggering and it's complete break from logic, from wisdom, even from science, and yet it has widespread social acceptance. And I end the quote. Did you know that America aborts 67% of early detection babies with Down syndrome? 67%. And in Iceland, the percentage is actually much higher than that if you can actually imagine that. A doctor from Iceland was boastfully saying in an interview that they, they have eradicated Down syndrome from their country. As if to say they have solved the problem. And really what he means is that they kill 100% of early detection children with Down syndrome. 100%. Hmm. When you look at these stats... The only normal reaction is to just weep. Just weep. At the lack of value that our so-called brothers and sisters, even at the lack of value many Christians display or have for human life. And so many of them are so quick to post even on social media because this is a hot topic, right? Uh, and, and to even defend this evil, this, this demonic spirit, pro-choice, as if it's our choice on the matter in the first place. It never was. It never will be. <laughs> there are many scriptures that we can point to, and I, and I, want, I want to do exactly just that. That defend the idea of it's not just the fetus, it's not just cells, but human life in the womb. And one of the clearest examples that I can think of is in Exodus 21. There's this, I don't know if you're familiar with the passage, a very interesting passage. There's this interesting situation where two men get in a fight. And if they accidentally harm a pregnant woman, whatever happens to the baby needs to happen to the person who harms the baby. Did you know that? And if the baby dies, it's the death penalty for an accidental killing of a child. 
This is actually the most harsh and strict capital punishment. But you know what the law does, church? It shows God's heart. It shows God's heart. Also, we need to know this. You can actually read about this in the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 19 more specifically, that if you, if you chop down a tree and if you accidentally killed someone with an ax, and this is an adult, not a child, an adult, it's not the death penalty for that. Huh. But if you accidentally harm an unborn child, the fate of that child is the fate of you, your fate. It's the passage where we get eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for life from. Wayne Grudem summarizes, because I want to summarize this point now, but Wayne Grudem summarizes biblical theology on the unborn like this. He says, and I quote, God placed a higher premium on protecting the life of the unborn child and the pregnant mother than protecting the life of anybody else in Israelite society, end quote. And we see it clearly in God's word. Again, this is God's heart. Compare that to what's happening today. Oh, Lord. Let me say this as well. Statistically speaking, there are probably women who went through with an abortion, maybe, maybe not here this morning, maybe yes, but maybe listening to the podcast. By the way, we, have a, we do have a following. If that's the case, I want to speak to you for a second. And I want to say, I don't know what the situation was, situation that you were going through, but God does. God knows you. And God has grace for you. And God has forgiveness for you. But the way that we experience renewal and a new life in Christ is definitely not calling something that is evil good. That's not how we do it. It's not to try to redefine good and evil for ourselves. That's not what we ought to do. And I would ask this question, are we more concerned with our rights than with doing what is right in God's eyes? Hopefully the whole goal of, of, of even of this message, even as we get through our passage today, uh, Matthew 5, 21 to 26, is to reshape our thinking, church, from common cultural norms or even, even political ideologies and peer pressure from our friends and coworkers and all the other ways that we determine good and right and right and wrong, and to say Jesus is the Son of God and He is our ultimate authority. Amen? What do we say here at Summit? Our second value. Scripture is our highest authority. Yeah. With that in mind, let's look at our text. And we're going to split our text in three portions. Uh, we're going to do 21 and 22, 23 and 24, and 25 and 26. And we're going to have a main point for every pair of verses. But let's just, let me just read again verses 21 and 22 and kind of get to work through these verses. You have heard, it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, the point number one that we want to make, that actually Jesus makes in these two verses is this. Hatred is murder in the mind. And you can put it like this, anger is murder with the mind. <laughs> this is going to be fun. Now, we know 
uh, we, we need to know this, that the quotation, you shall not murder, that we see here, it actually continues. It actually continues. So Jesus is not just referencing Exodus 20, 13. What he's also referencing is people's interpretation of that as well. Probably the Pharisees and the scribes, their interpretation most likely. And what Jesus does is he gives the reason on why you shouldn't murder, right? The interpretation of the Pharisees and the scribes was, you shall not murder or else you're going to be liable to judgment, okay? AKA, don't kill anyone or else you'll get in trouble, right? You shall not murder because, you know, uh, it's against the law. That was their justification and their justification. Just that, just that. And Jesus is saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Please tell me why is it against the law to begin with? Why? Because if that's the case, you can probably even get away with murder. If no one finds you out, (laughs) then you're good to go, right? And Jesus basically says, you guys are totally missing the point here. There's a better reason not to kill than just you'll get in trouble. There's a better reason. This actually goes pre-Mosaic covenant in Genesis 9. Let's go there. Where God makes a covenant with Noah and says in Genesis 9, 6, Whoever sheds the blood of men, by men shall his blood be shed. For God made men in his own image. I'll, I'll read that again, the last part. For God made men in his own image. Church, this is an important theology known as the imago Dei, and it means the image of God. Human beings are not just another animal or another form of animal. We are made in the image of God, the only species in the universe. That means that Christians should have the highest perspective for human life out of any other group on planet Earth. It's called the sanctity of life. It's not just we shouldn't kill because it's illegal to kill people. Rather, we don't shed blood because there's life in the blood. There's life in the blood and it matters. The life of an unborn child matters because we're made in the image of our creator, God. And what Jesus is saying here, good job. Good job, you guys. You didn't kill anyone. Good job. Give yourself a round of applause. Good job. And he says, let's just take it back a few steps and let me show you the heart behind the command. It's what you were missing all along. You know why people don't love the Old Testament, all the laws? Because they don't see the heart behind the commands. But God is being displayed to us if we have eyes to see. Anyone who even thinks, Jesus says, about hurting someone, even, even... Anyone who is even angry, who even hates, who even is bitter with his wife, that person is liable to the judgment, he says. Ooh, well, that makes things interesting. And by the way, liable not to a court. You're not going to go to prison because you're, you're, you know, you're being angry at someone. He's talking about judgment from the God of the universe, the divine counsel. Hatred is murder with the mind. Anger is murder with the mind. That's the point that Jesus is trying to make. By the way, we're going to see in all of these, all six of these sayings for the remainder of this chapter, and specifically, Jesus is not just about the letter of the law, right? He's not, he's not about the obvious and evident sin that is captured in the law, but he's talking about the sin that is behind the sin, the heart of the matter. Does that make sense? So what's the sin that leads to murder? Well, let's think of Cain and Abel. 
It was anger. It was hatred. And so Jesus wants to get to the heart of the matter. And hatred and anger is murder with the mind. You may not be guilty of killing anyone, but you are probably guilty of thinking that person is dead to me. Or I wish that person was dead. Wishing evil. Wishing evil on someone. Speaking evil over someone. It's bitterness. It's grudges. It's unforgiveness. All of this is in one category, church. And it's so unlike God. So unlike God. And he wants us to be more like him. Here's the reality. Some people are just explosive with their anger. That would be me, right? And even I get angry sometimes. Yeah, I do. Some of you have seen it. And so for some people, it's obvious that they are angry about something. But other people are implosive with their anger. Is that you? And I would just say to you, don't think you're off the hook just because you're nicer with how you get angry. <laughs> There's the silent treatment. Have you heard about that? There's the cold shoulder. There's the passive aggressive behavior. Is that you? And to bottom line it here, Jesus says, all of you, this is so, this is so striking. All of you, you are in danger of the fires of hell for even those kinds of murder, anger, and hatred, and whatever you can fit in between. How much more so for an actual murder? That's what he's getting at. So Jesus is trying to get to the heart of the matter because in some cases, who's going to find you out? Right? You can get away with things. If, if, if the only thing you're concerned with is being found by a person, and maybe the person that you're angry with, well, they will never find out, or maybe you'll never go to jail. But the truth is, is that God will find you out, and he knows. Check this out. Hebrews 4.12. This is what God's word says. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of souls and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. God sees even the hidden motives of the heart. Let me ask this question then. Is Jesus saying that you should never get angry? Is that what he's saying here? No, I don't think he is. In fact, if he were saying that all anger is wrong and sinful, then what's the deal with Jesus flipping tables, that one passage that everyone kind of goes to, right? Everyone kind of at least knows that passage or of that passage. Well, in Matthew 21, 12 to 13, Jesus is in the temple, yes, and he doesn't seem like he's happy. You know, he just, we can put it that way at least. When he's driving out the people who are using the place of sacred worship and, and as a place to make a profit, you know, from ripping people off. That was kind of the, the gist. And, and then, because I have to give you, and you'll see why, a second example, Jesus says in Matthew 23, 17, bear with me, you blind fools. Okay, but hold on. Doesn't Jesus just tell us in our passage today that anyone who says you fool will be in the danger of the fires of hell? And in Matthew 23, he literally just says, you blind fools. What is going on here? Is Jesus a hypocrite? What? First of all, quick side note on the word fool. Let's make this clear. Jesus was maybe edgy, okay? But he is not cussing in the Sermon on the Mount, I assure you. So when we read that word fool, it's like calling someone an idiot. Like, 
moron, a blockhead. We use that in, in high school, right? blockhead. It's, it's not like a serious curse word. It's not like you have to censor Jesus out. Doo, doo, doo. No, 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 that's not the case here. The point is when he says you fool, he's using one of the most lighthearted names that you could call someone. And he, and he is saying that it's not even what you say necessarily. Check this out. And this is the point. It's about the posture of your heart. What is behind these words that come out? What's the posture of the heart? That's what he was pointing at. Because you know what? You may use a common nice name, right? And it may not be one of the four-letter cuss words. I'm not using the F word, right? I'm, I'm good. And because of that, we can justify ourselves. Well, I didn't say anything bad. Again, he's getting at the heart of the matter. Why are you saying those things? And by the way, the difference between the anger that we see in us most of the time and the difference between the anger that comes and we see, you know, that comes out of Jesus has everything to do with the posture of the heart. It has to do with what's in the heart. D.A. Carson says this about Jesus' anger, and it's so important. Check this out, and I quote, His anger, Jesus' anger, erupts not out of personal anger and temper, but out of an outrage at injustice, at sin, at unbelief, and exploitation of others. There are four groups, four reasons, that's it. (laughs) Right, so four categories of things we can be angry about. We have to learn this. So there are four reasons why Jesus got angry. And I would say every time when you get angry, dear brother and sister, is it because of any of these four things? Is it because you see some injustice being done? Is that, is that why you're angry? Is it because you see sin? Is that why you're angry? Or is it because of sin? <laughs> as in like sin comes out of you. <laughs> Maybe sin in your life and you're just angry about it. I lied again to my wife and it breaks my heart because it breaks hers. Is is that why you're angry? Are you angry at the unbelief of this broken world? Maybe you shared the gospel with your neighbor, John, 50 times and he just pushes back and you're like, you're just broken because is that why you're angry? And are you angry at the exploitation, exploitation of others? Is that why you're angry? Let's face it. Is it 99% that we're not angry at all these things? Am, am, am I right with that? Am, am I being offensive right now? <laughs> Are you getting angry at me <laughs> because of that? The reality is that for most of us, when we're angry, it's probably because somebody did something to us that we didn't like. Our expectations were not met. Somebody wronged us personally. Somebody offended us. And we're like, oh. Just going to spend two weeks at home and not talking to anyone. By the way, this is very important to keep in mind as well. When it comes to Jesus and his personal suffering, this is so important. His posture is always the suffering servant. Did you know that? Where he endures it willingly, silently even. But when the name of the Father is on the line, oh, you better watch out. When, the, when, when God's word is on the line, you better watch out. When others were on the line, especially children in the marginalized, Jesus gets very angry about serious sin issues. Not because someone offended him, called him a name or whatever. We should take the advice of James, the brother of Jesus. We just studied the book of James at the end of last year, right? 
This, this passage should be so familiar to us. James 1, 19, 20 says this. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be what? Quick to listen, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Can we just memorize that verse, please? Can we do it as a church? This would be so beneficial. Even the three clauses, the three clauses, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Quick to hear and to listen. You know what that means? Humility, humility. And then slow to speak, slow to post on social media, slow to prove your point, slow at all those things. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And I would say a different way that maybe we can get what what James is saying by this. For the anger of man does not produce the righteous anger of God. Does that make sense? Honestly, if we think about all the things that we get angry about and bitter about and we hold grudges and in light of eternity, they are so often so petty, so petty, so petty. But the righteous anger of God is activated at injustice. He gets angry at sin, angry at the exploitation of others, and angry at unbelief. Let that sink in. Let that sink in and do what it's supposed to do, church. Let's continue through our text, verses 23 and 24. So we know that anger and hatred is murder in the mind. That was the main point. That was the first main point. Let's see what Jesus antidote for anger is. Let's see if these verses would would tell us that. Verses 23 and 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Point number two. The antidote for anger is what? Reconciliation. Reconciliation. The antidote for anger is reconciliation. Jesus continues, and he now gives, he now gives us two examples. And the first example that he gives is about bringing a sin offering to the temple in Jerusalem, right? And if you lived in Jerusalem, you, you would probably go to the temple pretty, pretty frequently. But if you lived in Galilee, and by the way, many people who listened to the Sermon on the Mount, they lived in Galilee. So they were far off in a sense from Jerusalem. So if that was the case for you and your family, you would probably only go once or twice a year to bring a sin or a guilt offering at the temple in Jerusalem. Keep that in mind because it wouldn't be feasible. I was like, you know, it would be this whole ordeal. It would take kind of a a whole day. You would make a whole day out of it. Uh, You would bring your goat, which you would uh, would have to take to the altar. There would be probably a a long line in the courts of the temple. So you'd probably have to wait an extra few hours until you get your turn. And now you're finally up at the altar. You've waited the whole day pretty much to atone for your sins. And you just remembered, ah, I just remembered I had a fight with my neighbor, John, and I got really mad and angry and I called him an idiot. God, I just remembered. And what Jesus is warning us against is going through with it. That's what he's, that's the context. And what he's warning us and gets saying, oh, well, I guess this sacrifice makes up for the incident with John. I'm just going to go ahead and do it, right? I guess God would be pleased because I'm doing this religious thing now instead of doing the right thing and reconciling with my neighbor. Here's a formula that we need to memorize. 
Hidden sin plus worship equals hypocrisy. Oh, let that sink in. Hidden sin plus worship equals hypocrisy. Unrepented sin, if you may. Unresolved at the, at the foot of the cross sin plus worship. Hey, we're just going to sing louder. We're going to go to D groups now and we're going to go to prayer meetings. It doesn't matter how many things you add. It still equals hypocrisy. Does that make sense? Remember when Samuel speaks to King Saul, when King Saul thinks that his sacrifice is going to, to make up for his disobedience, Samuel says to obey is better than sacrifices. Remember when the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 29, 13, uh, he, he talks about the people who are obeying the letter of the law in certain ways, but they defraud people and wrong people. Isaiah says, this generation honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. Jesus is saying kind of the same thing. Jesus says in our passage, listen, why don't you guys just stop right there? I don't care if you've traveled five days, a year. Get out of line and start repenting. Start confessing your sin in prayer to God. And then go and reconcile with the sin that you, with the people that your sin injured. Now, this is an extreme example. An extreme example because you already traveled for hours to the place of worship, to the temple in Jerusalem. This is not like driving to Summit Church for like 10 and 15 minutes, sipping out of your coffee and, you know, having heat and all the, all the luxury in the world. Nah, this is not like hitting pause on the live stream when you watch whatever, you know, live stream of a, of a service of a church and then go make amends, go write a text. Hey, you know, this is an extreme example because Jesus wants to prove a point. But here's the point. The antidote for anger is reconciliation. And that's a little unexpected, right? I, I don't think we, we, I would expect that. We would probably guess that the antidote for anger would be some sort of repression. Like, let me just suppress that anger a little bit, right? Just try really hard to suppress that anger. Just, just try really hard not to fly off the handle next time, man. Like, you know, and if you do that, if you keep it down, it's going to get better and better as time goes on. <laughs> but that doesn't work, does it? That will never work. Listen to this, church. Behind most of the anger that we experience... And you, 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 you ask the Holy Spirit to reveal this to you as well. There's usually a name. There's usually a face. There's usually a person. This is really the problem behind anger or most of it. There's usually a name, a face, and a person that bothers you. And here's the point Jesus is trying to make. If you look at the heart of the matter, if we look at why we don't, why we don't, kill people, right? Well, it's because humans are made in the image of God. We just looked at that, right? Well, so why don't we harbor bitterness and grudges and hatred towards people? It's for the same reason, because people are made in the image of God. This is actually the fulfillment of this commandment, you shall not murder. It's not just to prohibit the actual you know, act of murder, but it's to allow you to see beyond the problem. It's not only to see the heartache that they've caused you, right? But to see the person behind the problem. And do you see that person as someone who bears the image of God? Or you see that person as a problem to be solved? 
very interesting. We get thinking like God is thinking, very interesting. We see the same antidote in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, where Paul speaks to the church in Ephesus about anger. But notice all the synonyms for anger that he uses in this verse. That's why I said it's a huge category. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slender, <laughs> that's a lot, be put away. And he's like, along with all malice. I, 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 I forgot one. Let me just include malice as well. And in verse 32, he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Oh. So what's the solution to unrighteous anger? Well, I think it's very clear, even from this passage in Ephesians, it's reconciliation. It's to make it right with the person that you're sin injured. It's restoring the relationship. It's making things right. Now, what's really interesting about this first example, not sure if you picked it up, but you're the one who sinned. You're the transgressor. Did you pick that up? You're not the victim here, right? Because it's very easy for us to imagine that we're the victim. It's a knee-jerk reaction of the flesh. I'm always the victim, right? And the other person is always the transgressor. But Jesus gives this example where you are the transgressor, right? You're at the place of worship and you remember that your neighbor has something to do, something against you, not the other way around. And I wonder if Jesus, because he does this quite a bit, he flips things around on us. I wonder if he's trying to get us to think about the golden rule, which we'll see later in the Sermon on the Mount, which is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. In other words, what would you want someone else to do if they had wronged you? Would you want them to go living life as usual? No, you would not. The words that we crave so much from the ones that wrong us. I'm so sorry, man. Forgive me. I messed up, right? The words that we crave. If you want the same thing to be done onto you when you are the victim, then you better make things right with the person that you're sin injured or offended. You make essentially the first move. You make the first move. In fact, check this out. Make the first move anyways. Ooh, what? Why? Why? Because you have the heart of Christ, don't you? We'll talk more about this at the end. But whether you are the one that messed up and wronged someone, or if you have been wronged, make the first move either way. Reach out. Reconciliation is the antidote to your anger, to your hatred. One amazing quote that I heard and points to a beautiful but hard-to-apply principle from the Bible is this. Even if I'm only 2% responsible for a conflict, I'm 100% responsible for my 2%. Someone write that down. <laughs> Again, even if I'm only 2% responsible for a conflict, I'm 100% responsible for my 2%. That's a biblical principle. We play these imaginary games, don't we? Well, I know the relationship is struggling. I know that, you know, we're not talking anymore, but she is mostly guilty. Own your 
Forget about their 99%. Own your 2%. Well, they wronged me first, and then I responded in a hateful way. Own your 2%. Let me say this also. There's no healing and reconciliation without humility. None. If we want true reconciliation, and we should, because that's the heart of God, we have to be quick to listen and quick to reach out and quick to reconcile, making the first step. Here's a good point to remember about conflict resolution. Conflict resolution is never convenient. Oh no, because we're so proud. If, If you're waiting for the convenient time to make the first step, it will never, ever, ever, ever happen. If you're waiting to feel a certain way about the person that wronged you or you wronged, it will never happen. You are always going to come up with an excuse. I mean, Lord, I'm at the temple now. I've traveled a full day. I mean, come on. I, I have my goat here. It's a good one. And, and, and I, I've been in the line, line up in the three hours. I have my, if I go now, I'll have to come back again. And I, no, 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 I don't want to. Jesus says, leave it. Leave it and go reconcile. Leave it, go at once now. Conflict resolution is never convenient. Well, I'm so busy. It's a hard season for my family, you see. Jesus says, drop it with the excuses and go reconcile to your brother and sister. That is more important. Let me give us another great tip for reconciliation. The reality is that if you can't let it go, if you can't let it go, go to the person. Let me explain. If you can't let it go, go to the person. Now, is this to say that every time there's a problem going on, we always have to make a deal out of something that's, that's not a big deal? No, not at all. The reality is that as God has grace for us, right? if you are able to let that person off the hook and genuinely forgive them, please do. By the way, That would be ideal, that would be biblical, and God-honoring, that's the better way, actually, just to do that. I have this principle, this life principle that makes conflict resolution super easy. I've said this for a, a, a number of years. It goes something like this. No one has wronged me as much as I have wronged Jesus, okay? And Jesus shows me so much grace and forgiveness. Why wouldn't I be able to show grace and forgiveness to someone that has wronged me so much less? Does that make sense? Conflict resolution should be so easy just looking at the gospel. Conflict resolution should be so easy, but it's not. And that's because the gospel is not close to our hearts a lot of times. But if you think that you've forgiven and you still can't speak to that person in a normal conversation, there's still something there, and and you're having dreams about hurting them, right? Revenge fantasies. If you're rehearsing in your mind a perfect conversation where you win the perfect argument, you know, people do these things. If that's the case, stop talking to that imaginary person in your mind and talk to the person in person. Send a text message, make that call. And ask, hey, can we grab coffee tomorrow? This is urgent. I want to make it right with you. Now, this isn't to say that there isn't a time to cool off a little bit. Collect your thoughts and, I don't know, to be wise on how we go about doing these kinds of things. But genuinely, if you're not able to cover that offense with grace and forgiveness, go talk to the person. But if you are able, and you should, by God's grace, 
as it says in, Philipp, in, in, in Ephesians, forgiving one another as Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. That's amazing. Then do that as often as possible. Don't make the other person say, I'm sorry if that's not necessary because this is the better way anyways. The reality is that the closer the gospel is to your heart, the faster you can forgive people. That's a proven fact. One of the most foundational things that we see in the gospel is God forgiving us of all of our crap. Excuse my French. And if we can't forgive our brothers and sisters for something that is far, 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 far less than Christ forgave us, then the gospel is not very close to our hearts, is it? Or in some instances, it's not even there. But if you're not able to let it go and cover it with grace, then you have to go to the person and reconcile to them. Because according to Jesus, the antidote for anger is not repression, just shove it down deep and, and get over it. It's reconciliation. It's genuine reconciliation. It's what God has done to us through Christ. And by the way, the goal here is relate the relationship. It's not to prove your point. The goal is not to be right. The goal is not to prove to them that, hey, I'm only 2% responsible. You're, you have the 98. No, no, that's not the point here. Make sure you're quick to hear. As you do that, slow to speak and slow to anger. If you follow these biblical guidelines for reconciliation, it will at least go way better than what we think it's going to go because we usually rehearse in our minds the worst case scenario. But let me just say this as well. If the other person doesn't want to reconcile, you cannot force anyone into reconciliation. At that point, just make sure you forgive. Just make sure you forgive while well, we have to do that either or, right? By the way, this forgiveness part is so important that Jesus in the Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray like this and forgive us as we forgive others. It takes two to reconcile, but it takes only you to forgive. It takes only me to forgive. Let's continue with the, the last two verses. Uh, it's actually a second example that Jesus gives. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, once again, the second example that Jesus gives, a little bit different than the last, but notice you are guilty again. <laughs> You're guilty again. And it looks like you are guilty financially this time. You owe somebody money, and you are headed to the court right? It looks like they are suing you. And if you don't strike a deal with the person, then you're going to, to go to the debtor's prison. There's such a thing. There was such a thing in the, in the ancient uh, world. That's what's going to happen, right? That's the end of you. So it's this, it's this idea that on the way to the courtroom, you're about to enter in and you grab that person really quickly that you owe money to. And you're like, Hey man, I'm so sorry for not reaching out yet. But, but before we go in there, can we, can we just make a deal? Please, please, I want to settle this. Can we settle it somehow? And by doing so, you own your guilt. That's kind of the backdrop of this. The point that Jesus is making here is that reconciliation is urgent. Reconciliation is urgent. If you don't make a deal before you, you get into the courtroom, there's no helping you. <laughs> You're going to prison. You will not get out until you pay the last penny, which is, which is, again, by the way, a common practice in the ancient world. There was this prison, and until you could pay off your debt, you pretty much lived there and possibly died as well. 
And once again, Paul and his teachings to the Ephesian church, chapter uh, 4, verses 26 and 27, he writes something very similar, and he says this. Be angry. Notice he doesn't say suppress anger. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, I don't think the point of this is to get kind of legalistic about it and to say, well, in a literal way, don't let the sun go down because then you know, that's not, I don't think that's the point here. But the main point is clear. We need to be urgent about reconciliation. That's the main point. And why do we need to, to be urgent about reconciliation? Well, I think Paul answers it. Do you see it? Give no opportunity to the devil. That's why. Because he's going to take it and he's going to run with it and he's going to destroy your life. <laughs> That's what he's going to do. Guess who's going to use that unresolved conflict? Guess who? The devil. He's going to use that opportunity and create disunity, disharmony, discord. In some instances, he's going to tear churches apart, which I see and we see all the time. He's going to tear society apart. He is going to tear families apart. And that's why this is urgent. Don't give him the opportunity. Unresolved anger is not just one of those issues that just goes away, you know, with enough time. They say time heals uh, all wounds. Nope, nope, not all of them. Because the devil is actually going to use that opportunity. The longer you wait, the more destruction he is going to create. So give no opportunity to the devil. Clear, right? The reality is that forgiveness is pronouncing freedom. But it's not just freedom on the other person, right? But it's freedom for you as well. It is freedom for you as well. This is what forgiveness does. Because you've been chained down to holding down that grudge, that hatred, that anger. And that's not the way God wants us to live. Because it will destroy our lives. So what, what, what are we going to do about reconciliation? Well, we're going to be urgent about it. And I want to encourage us, all of us this morning, send that text right now. If you're convicted right now, send it right now. I'm not, I promise you I'm not going to get offended if you text right now. We usually text about some horrible, you know, things, reasons in church. Like, hey, what are you doing after church? You know, you want to go for lunch? No, you can text about this right now. That's how urgent this is. And I will not get offended if you walk out and reconcile with some neighbor or whatever person that you're being convicted of. Because it's urgent. It's that important. The second relationship that we need to come to terms quickly with, and this is the last point and I'm finishing here, is we need to come to terms quickly with God. If reconciliation with another human being is urgent, reconciliation with God is extremely urgent. It's striking to me that in the second example that Jesus gives in our passage, it's very clear to me that there's this debt that we owe all of us. A debt that we cannot pay and we're 100% guilty of. And unless someone has grace and mercy on us, we end up in prison until we pay the last penny. Does that sound like a situation that you're familiar with? This is where we are without Christ, church. This is the gospel before we've received God's grace and mercy in our lives. We owe a huge debt. We are guilty and we're a bunch of broken and lost sinners. Everyone is. 
And Paul in Colossians chapter two, he uses this language of debt, that our sin against God is, is, is debt. Do you realize the amount of wrath that all of our sins have built up with the God of the universe? Do you realize that? And yet look at what God was willing to do for you and for me. Let me read this Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, we're, we're on our way to the courtroom. We're being judged right now. There's no hope for us, right? But God made a life together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. And now notice the language of debt. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And just as Jesus Christ, the righteous one, was nailed to the cross, the one who never sinned, the one who never fell short of the glory of God, dying for the sins of the world. But do you know what's being nailed there with Jesus on the cross? Do you know what? It's the record of debt, of every sin you have ever committed or ever will commit from this point. Sins of past, present, and future. And by the power of Christ's resurrection, we could be raised up to a new life in him so that now I can forgive others. I can forget the offense. I can, hey, I love you. Who cares that you called me an idiot? That's the new life that we ought to live because of the power of the Holy Spirit now in our lives, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He enables us to do exactly just that. That is the good news of the gospel, church. How amazing is this? And what Jesus is saying to you, if you've never responded to the good news of the gospel, just as we have it in our passage, he's saying, let's make a deal. Come on, let's make a deal. You need to realize that you are on the way to the courtroom. You're on your way to your judgment, but he is willing to be merciful and graceful. He's willing to extend grace and forgiveness to you. He's willing to let you off the hook for your sins, but we have to receive that grace that God has for us by faith, asking him to forgive your sins and to lead your life. We have such a good God. Wow. And we have such an amazing message that we proclaim. Would you stand with me? Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.